Well, good morning, everyone. Josh, thanks for playing the bass. Awesome. Join me, if you would, in Psalm 50. As summer's drawn to the close, the temperatures don't seem to realize it, right? It's still hot, super hot. But as summer draws to a close, so will our series that we've been doing, the Summer in the Psalms. And after this series, I mean, after this Sunday, we'll have a couple more weeks in, this, in the Psalms before we transition and change to our next series, which will be a walk through the book of Ephesians. And I'm super excited to start the upcoming school year in the book of Ephesians. I'll kind of forewarn you that we're going to take a break about six weeks into that sermon series to do a kind of a standalone sermon series on the church. And that, that sermon series on the church will coincide with our church's birthday. Um, believe it or not, I mean, turn around and look back and our church is a, will be a year old in October. So we're going to spend that month, it's another five Sunday month, um, delving into kind of a theology of church and and what does God intend for the church to be about and to do and uh, what's to be important in the life of the church. Uh, Lord willing, we will uh, and we hope to welcome Concord's pastor, David King, for one of those Sundays and we enthusiastically would encourage you to use that entire month as a uh, occasion to invite your friends and neighbors to join you and to uh, come and see what Redeemer's about. And we hope what they see is that we're, we're a church that seeks to exalt Christ. And um, that's our hope and aim. So to that end, um, that's kind of a commercial for what's upcoming, right? So in light of that upcoming study of not just Ephesians, but the church, I wanted to take this Sunday and introduce you to Psalm chapter 50. Now, one of the primary things that the church is called to do is gather regularly to worship God through prayer and through the reading of the scriptures and through hearing the Bible preached and, and on certain Sundays, like today, to uh, come around the Lord's table and celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. And um, with, with that taking place week after week, and by that I mean the gathering week after week, just as Pastor Bill has alluded to, it's... It's, it's easy to slip into a rhythm and a routine and, and to almost by default, if not by habit, slip into simply the externals of worship by rote memory and um, not having our hearts engaged um, nor unexamined. So this is not just a modern day temptation, right? It's not just a modern day thing that churches would have the occasion to kind of go through the motions and simply have church be limited to the externals of doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, as opposed to um, our hearts being engaged in worship. So Psalm 50 addresses that. Um, and in Psalm 50... God is not only addressing that as a problem, but he's doing so in what appears as it unfolds to be this huge cosmic courtroom, right? And in this courtroom where Psalm 50 unfolds this, God is the Almighty One. He is the judge. He is the prosecutor. And he's the jury, 
right? And, and he's going to lay out a case. Um, and it, it might surprise you whom his case is against. He will call the peoples of the world. He will call the angelic host. And those people you would think as the insiders of the children of Israel, wow, yes, finally, he's going to lay the smack down on the outsiders, right? But actually it's the outsiders who he's called in and summoned to be witnesses to hear the charges which are being levied against the church. Um, So in light of that, um, I must tell you, this is not one of my favorite psalms. But it is one that I must refer to and that I desperately need more than I care to admit. So this is Psalm 50. I'm going to read it as I go this time. Usually I'll read the whole passage and then go back through it. But this time I want to read it as I go. So if you'll direct your attention to Psalm 50, the opening words there where it says, A Psalm of Asaph. So this psalm is one of ten psalms that were written by Asaph, who was the chief musician during the time of David. When King David brought his, not his, but the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, it was Asaph who was charged um, to and commissioned to lead the triumphal music. This particular psalm of Asaph, however, is a psalm of instruction. And the fact that it deals with worship should not be a surprise to us that it's coming from him, right? The chief musician. But this psalm is a psalm of instruction that is calling on God's chosen people to repent. It's calling on God's chosen people to repent and to make a change. So we'll walk through this psalm in three parts. First, the court. Second, the charge. And third, the correction. First, let's look at the court. We'll find it being called into session in verses 1 through 6. As I walk us through here, I want you to notice how the summons from God, so he's calling people to court, so the summons from God and the splendor of God are intertwined within these first six verses. Okay, here's verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord speaks and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Right? So clearly Asaph is holding the pen, but here's a psalm where he is speaking on behalf of God and he's doing so using an array of titles to refer to God. El, Elohim, Yahweh, Jehovah, and he's doing so describing from whom this word derives. So we're meant to see this multiple use of names to describe God here at the very outset because God alone is infinite and God alone is transcendent in power and he alone is worthy of heartfelt worship. Now, God himself is calling court into session. And he's doing so from the east to the west. And the titles that were used there carry with it an authority that is due the eternal one, right? It's, it, it carries with it the authority due to the judge. It carries with it an authority due to the Almighty. You know, in earthly courts, the judge enters into the room and a bailiff or someone's going to say, all rise, and out of respect for his office and position, there is a standing up when he is announced. Well, now God is announcing himself. 
And he is doing so with a multitude of names. Notice what it continues to say in verse 2. He says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And he says this, this is in quotes, if you're just listening, you might not see those quote marks, but it says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And then there's that word that we've grown used to seeing when, when we're meant to kind of, hey, take a break, take this in, as it says, Selah. It's important for us to notice, let me kind of talk back through what we've just read. It's important for us to notice from where the summons uh, is being issued and to notice the contrast that's being highlighted. Notice what it says. God shines forth out of Zion. And he describes Zion as the perfection of beauty. Zion. The location of the temple. Zion. The place of, that God himself has chosen to reveal himself. He, and he, he's done so relationally among his people and to make his presence known to his people. It stands in contrast to another mount, right? Mount Zion stands in contrast to Mount Sinai, which you remember it was from Mount Sinai that, that God demonstrated himself again with, with the same kind of splendor and, and, and grandeur of a devouring fire when he gave the people the Ten Commandments and when he revealed himself and the way in which he was to live. But this is not Sinai. It's Zion. Out of Zion, God shines forth. Now it was from this temple that God revealed himself to the people in splendor and in glory. And we've talked about that throughout this summer as we've looked at the Psalms. But indeed, for this courtroom summons, this, this gavel being about to drop, God revealed himself in a most marvelous way. Notice how he does it. It's, it's not a bailiff announcing him and having people stand. There is a devouring fire going before him. And there's a mighty tempest, this theophany of, of picturing God in his splendor and grandeur coming out with his voice of introduction for who he is. There would be no mistaking the importance and the seriousness of the call, nor the caller. The summons is far-reaching, as we saw. He calls the angelic beings in the heavens, and he summons all mankind upon the earth. But God is not calling people outside of his chosen people so as to judge them. He's calling on them and the angels so that they can witness his charge against his chosen people. This is a serious charge for how the people had grown accustomed to entering into the worship setting. Notice, he calls to the heavens, this is straight from the text, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones. You would think that if he's referring to them as his faithful ones, they, they're getting things right, wouldn't you? 
who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. He's not being sarcastic when he's referring to them as his faithful ones, just as Pastor Bill again earlier prayed that we would recognize the the grace involved, that we've been called out ourselves, that we are we have been um, chosen as as these faithful ones were as well. The point that God is making in his summons and in the way that he's addressing uh, his covenant people here is that they had been set out, and they had been set out as his own people. He, God, had entered into a binding covenant relationship with them, and that covenant relationship had been ratified and coupled with a sacrifice which would have which we would have represented the fact that he had the authority to follow through with his covenant, but they didn't have the ability to carry up their means, right? Because they were a sinful people, there would have to be a sacrifice made in the making of that covenant with his people. And it really is at that point that you and I, as we're reading this, and we see those words, covenant, um, faithful ones, sacrifice, that we too come to celebrate the fact that you and I, those of you who were in Christ, those of you who have been saved, bought by the blood of Jesus, we too are covenant people. We too have been offered entrance into his family as set-apart ones, holy ones, faithful ones. And our setting apart, our invitation into family, came at the expense of another, Right? It wasn't the blood of an animal that, that paid the entrance fee in the way for us to be family with God. God's own Son, Jesus, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And having never sinned, He bore our sin and stood in as our substitute, becoming our sacrifice by dying on the cross. When we read the words describing his faithful ones in the Old Testament, and we see covenant, we see faithful ones, we see sacrifice, it forces us to pause in worship and gratitude for the way that Jesus has made that available to us. I don't want you to miss that as we're just in this Old Testament chapter as if somehow God's grace and God himself has changed as the passing of the pages of Scripture. Let's get back to our chapter, though, because this summons to court, given that connection that I've just talked about, about Christ being our sacrifice and us being the faith ones that have been called into family, this summons to court is as much for us as it was for the children of Israel. We are wise. We are wise to hear the judgment from God to his people and to examine our own hearts and make any corrections which he suggested and that we'll get to in just a moment. Like them, I'll say we, but when I forget or when I grow cold to God's transcendence, his greatness, his majesty, it's easy to sin. <laughs> and it's even easier to treat worship our gathering, and even my time alone at the kitchen table but with the Word. It's easy to treat worship as something to motor through robotically. Check, check, check. 
Let's look now at verse 7, starting at verse 7, at this charge that, that God brings, and it is a pointed charge. It really requires very little explanation, but um, I want to make it as we go here. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13 and offer some explanation along the way. Here's what he says. Hear, O my people. So now he's got the witnesses in the stands, but he's talking to his people. He's talking to us. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Notice how God is wearing multiple hats in this courtroom. I am God, your God. Then he says this, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. I don't want to turn this on. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Let's, let's look at this for just a moment and kind of walk back through it. Notice what's happening. God rebukes them. Not by identifying what the problem is, but by identifying what the problem is not. You see what happened there? He says, Hear, O people, hear, O my people, I will speak. And then he goes on to this next verse. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So they're making it happen, right? They're, they're faithfully going. They're faithfully doing the things that they have been taught to do. But like the church of Ephesus, which is written about in Revelations chapter 2, they seem to have forgotten and walked away and, and lost their first love. They were faithful to do what was required. But they were just going through the motions. They were focused on the externals of rituals. They had that down pat. He's commending them for that. However, they were not focused on the internal expressions of love and thanksgiving to God. And that was, and frankly that is, totally unacceptable to God when it comes to worship. As if we can casually enter into this setting and check things off the box externally only. When worship is limited to the externals, going through the motions by rote, when worship is limited to the externals, worship becomes utterly unacceptable by God. Notice why I say that. He writes, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before you, but I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Now, Piper made this so clear for me as I was reading some things uh, throughout this, these past couple weeks preparing that I wanted to share with you what he said. Now, I'm, writing, I'm reading directly from him right now for a second. He wrote, The sentence is to nullify. So, to... to take away all credence to disregard the sentence is to nullify the sacrifice to declare that it is not pleasing to him this is a devastating sentence 
It basically says that the center of their religious practice was empty and was void as long as this mindset prevailed. So in other words, hey, we're going through the motions, but their heart was far from it, and it was nullifying their sacrifice in God's reception and in His heart. So you kind of keep going through this passage, and apparently along the way, the children of Israel had also embraced some pagan notion that somehow God needed them to bring these sacrifices to Him. That, in, in other words, God would go hungry had they not brought the sacrifices to them as if he got hungry or even had a stomach as far as that goes. So you can kind of understand now why the psalmist says this or God says this in this case. It's why we read on and says this, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, he says, I wouldn't tell you for the world and all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now listen, God had instituted the sacrificial system from Mount Sinai when he gave the law because he knew his people needed it. He knew his people couldn't keep the law perfectly. So he made a provision He did not institute the sacrificial system because he needed animals or because he needed to be fed. He knew the people desperately needed him. I don't want to stray too far away from our text this morning, but I do want to make a point without going much further that could be a standalone point because It just kind of bubbles out of this text and begs to be said. Notice how God says this. Every beast of the forest. I'm going to to accentuate something. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Notice three times this Mine, 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 God continues to say. He owns and knows intimately all that moves. Notice what he's saying here. Hey, I know all the birds of the hills. It's not like he knows, okay, that must be a woodpecker. No, that's, that's Willie the woodpecker. I mean, what God is saying here is I am intimately acquainted with everything that moves because they're all mine. Conversely, everything we have is from and belongs to God. We are trustees. We are not owners. It's easier to bestow glory to God and approach worship with heartfelt gratitude when we recognize that everything we have, not just our possessions, but also our very identity in Jesus, everything we have is a gracious gift to be offered back to Him in worship and leveraged for the sake of His great name. Mine, mine, mine. 
Nothing nullifies and disturbs our worship more greatly than than wrongly attributing where the word mine goes. It's my church. (laughs) It's, It's my class. It's my car. It's my job. They're my kids. They're, they're, they're all His. Everything we have. He's the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills and He knows every bird by name. He has given you even the desire to worship Him. So return it back to Him with gratitude and thanksgiving. And having laid out the charge in the courtroom, it brings us back to the courtroom, back from my little sidebar there. Pardon the pun. But let's go back there where the truth of the charge was meant to heal, not convict. I want you to see what God's doing here. He's he's laying it on, not thick, not unwarranted, but straight. So that his people through conviction will recognize the need to repent and realign and re realign their hearts in worship to him. Verses 14 and 15. Last point I'll make with this shows us three things. Third point being correction. Correction. Let me read verses 14 to 15 in total, and then we'll come back to it piece at a time. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, he says, and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Three things. First one is this. And bless that child's heart who is less than happy, right? And the mom who went to check on him. God wants His people to be thankful. God wants us to be thankful. Notice the word, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice. The the use of this word is on purpose, related to covenant, sacrifice. And now what we offer back to Him is a sacrifice. Yes of things. Yes of our lives. But primarily and first off of thanksgiving. Catch that. Ask yourself this question right now, just in your heart. Does my life reflect that I am overwhelmed at the undeserved goodness and grace that God has lavished upon me? Because when I was yet His enemy, when I was dead set against God, He loved me. And drew me to Himself. Does my life reflect that I'm overwhelmed at His goodness related to that? Next thing I'd like for you to consider, question. Is the starting point of my interaction with the God of the universe? And we could go back through the names of this chapter. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Judge. Is the starting point of my interaction with the God of the universe One of awe and humility? Or one of entitlement? And casual distance? Listen, I know you know this, but I'll say it anyway. Worship is not a checklist for us to mark off 
as we go through the externals, marking off each completed element, offering in a box, check, boom. Scripture read, boom, check. Song sung, boom, check. God is not pleased if this is our offering of worship. In fact, he's, he's saying in this chapter that, that this type of worship is nullified. Rather, he's pleased when we worship him in, as he said to the woman at the well, in spirit and in truth and with our hearts of thanksgiving because everything is his. He's given us life. And I want to underline this, both physical and spiritual. May our sacrifice of worship be led with thanksgiving. Second thing that He wants from us, we see in verse 14. He wants us to be truthful. Notice what He says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And then He says, and perform your vows to the Most High. This is strange. In Psalm 66, verses 13 and 14, the psalmist writes this, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform or I will pay my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my, my mouth promised when I was in trouble. Have you ever faced trouble and prayed out to God asking for help and in that same prayer said something like, if you get me out of this, I will. In a real lighthearted way, I did that one time on a uh, 31 mile trail run that in a moment of insanity I agreed to be in and thought, I may not survive this. And at mile 18, I began to make deals with the Lord akin to, if you, if you let me off of this trail, I will never do this race again. And I'm happy to say I've kept my word. <laughs> But if you've ever made one of those in seriousness, Psalm 50 is saying this, don't treat your commitments to God lightly. As if they were empty words to begin with. Follow through. Pay your vows. In short, be truthful. The other side of that same coin is just this, at, this encouragement Bring God total honesty when you come to Him in worship and in prayer. And I want to unpack that just for a second so you hear my heart on it. What does God want from us in worship? God is not teaching us that before we can approach Him in worship and in prayer and before we gather together each week that, that we have to have everything in order and that all of our vows are paid and that every areas of our life is cleaned up. Quite on the contrary, God is teaching us that what is acceptable to Him is when we give Him our heart, laying before Him, if not especially, our failures. If you enter into this room during worship and you are totally cognizant of the fact that I am not worthy to be here, you're right. And that's the point. Broken hearts are what God wants. One chapter over from Psalm chapter 50 is, is an expose that King David wrote after he experienced forgiveness from God from a moral failure that all the world knows about. 
And in chapter 51, verse 17, he writes these words, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken heart, and a contrite heart, O God, a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Enter in with integrity of heart, laying your life before Him, knowing that you have no reason, value, or worth to be before Him without Him. And let that make our hearts grateful. He doesn't need our offering placed in the box. He doesn't need that. I need to give an offering. (laughs) Because it reminds me that everything is His in the first place. He doesn't need my singing. I need to sing. Because as I sing, He is reaffirming the words and the truths of the Gospel deep in my heart and working that in. Increasing my gratitude that it's about Him and not me. He doesn't need the sermon. But He knows that I need the sermon. So that through the washing of the Word, I can be revived in spirit. And I can be transformed from the inside out. Is this what he's saying to the children of Israel? You think, hey, you think I'm hungry? I'd come to you? He has graciously given the things that we're presenting back to him as an offering because we need it. So when we gather in this room to worship, it's not to perform. Nobody cares how pretty or not pretty our voices are. We utter words of praise because we need it. It serves Him. It's an act of worship. But I leave encouraged as the Word is preached. I leave encouraged as I remind myself through the songs of the Gospel that it's about Him. God desires truth in our innermost being And when you bring your broken and contrite heart before Him in worship, it's an acceptable offering. One more thing that He points out, and I'll say this as we begin to close. God wants His people to be trusting. You see that? He says, and call upon Me in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver you. And, here's here's another result. You shall glorify Me. When we call upon Him, we can trust God to deliver us in the day of trouble. When we bring our broken and contrite hearts to Him, He delivers to the praise and glory of His grace. Get this. We get satisfied and He gets glorified in the day of trouble. I want to close our time this morning by highlighting one more thing related to that line right there. No doubt, listen, each of us could share our own stories, list of stories of days of troubles that we've all walked through, right? Maybe walking through right now. However, and I want you all to hear this, there is a big day of trouble coming that will make previous days of trouble all pale in comparison. 
And the day of trouble I'm referring to is the day of judgment where all people will stand before God and give an account. On that day, those who in this lifetime, in this day, (laughs) refuse to humble themselves and call out to God, who rejected Christ and the gospel, they will face an unimaginable trouble and punishment in hell for the rest of eternity. That is a day of trouble that can be missed by calling on the the Lord now. Because on that same day, those who in this lifetime called out to God for deliverance and were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, will be welcomed in to His reward. Knowing that, how could we, when we gather, but love Him? How could we, when we gather, but worship Him with sacrifices of thanksgiving? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We're going to sing a moment. And it's a song of response. And I invite you to sing as an offering. Not because God needs to hear four parts of harmony from this room. But because we need it. And as you're singing, I'm inviting you to take the moment to evaluate your heart. Have I slipped into the habit of going through the externals and the motions alone? I don't want to nullify my worship. Bring Him your heart. Because a broken and contrite heart, He will not spurn. He is grace. And He has proven that grace through the giving of His Son so that all who call upon Him in this day will avoid a day of trouble that is coming. And then after we sing, we get to celebrate that in a visual parable by coming around the Lord's table in remembrance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Gospel. And as it has been proclaimed from Psalm 50, I'm mindful that not everyone in this room this morning has trusted You as their Lord and Savior. Not everyone in this room has called upon You in their moment of trouble and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Save me, Jesus. Apply the finished work that You did on the cross to be applied to my life. You came to pay a sin debt. You came to pay my sin debt. Forgive me of my sin. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for stepping in as my substitute. I trust You for salvation in life. And Lord, I'm also mindful that there are many of us in this room that that love You. You called us as faithful ones to be Your family members. And even in spite of that, we all have a tendency to slip into the motions and, and revert our worship into the practice of just the externals of this service. Would you forgive us if that's the case? Or give us hearts of thanksgiving that we can return that back to You in praise and worship. And Lord, now as we sing, would You rehearse the Gospel in our hearts? And as we approach Your table, 
Lord, we do so in remembrance with gratitude for who you are and what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is indeed a good